0: You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 286. If you want success, you need to work like you're broke. Tyler Perry. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Hey, guys. So I wanted to let you know what we're going to be doing now on the show. Moving forward for a little while, uh, I wanted to kind of bring in some amazing episodes from the Indie Film Hustle Podcast Network with guest hosts, And you might recognize some of these guest hopes. We'll have Dave Bullis, Jason Buff, and Scott McMahon guest hosting some of these episodes every week. Now, we're going to be doing still our regular episodes uh, on once a week, and then we're going to be doing these guest episodes uh, the second part of the week. And that way we can get you guys more amazing content and help you move forward on your filmmaking or screenwriting journey. So sit back, relax, enjoy today's episode with guest host, Jason Buff.
1: I'm your host, Jason Buff. We're talking with Mad Max Fury Road co-writer, Brendan McCarthy. I'm extremely excited about talking with Brendan. Um, Mad Max Fury Road just blew my socks off. I can't believe that George Miller has gone back and made another mad max movie um for any of you that know the story about george miller in the background of the mad max movies um you got to be excited to know that this you know movie is out there now i've seen it once i can't wait to go see it again um but anyway you know so Brendan and i talk a little bit about his background in comics but then we get straight into talking about working with george miller on um fury road so Here we go. The first thing I was hoping we could talk about, because most of our uh, listeners are, you know, have a film background but don't necessarily have a comic background. So I was wondering if you could talk about your background in comics and kind of what got you into doing comics in the first place.
2: Okay. Um, Well, I read comics when I was a kid. Uh, I was English, and uh, in the U.K., we used to get American comics imported into certain uh, newsagents. And, um, I would pick off spinner racks, uh, things like, uh, original things like the Steve Ditko Spider-Man run, Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four run, and some of the DC, uh, comics, the Silver Age ones like the Infantino Flash, Gil Kane's Dream Lantern and Atom. So, um, that was my choice. But I, I was raised on British comics, but gradually moved over to the American comics, which at that time were quite rare in the UK. And uh, that led to a lifelong interest in the comic book medium and a desire to develop it, turn it into something akin to what what music occupies in culture or used to, uh, that we could grow this medium up and do substantial work in the comic book field. Um, I always had that intention, I always felt it was possible to become, if you like, the Beatles of comics as opposed to, you know, to turn comics into something um, much more exciting socially. And uh, I was part of the 80s UK, what's known as the British Invasion, which um, led by Alan Moore, people like Neil Gaiman, later Grant Morrison, John Wagner, writer of Chad Uh Well, I was part of that original uh, movement, and um, I worked with a writer called Peter Milligan, who went on to become a big-name writer in comics, and uh, worked for about uh, 15 years in comics before leaving to get into um, computer animation
1: Did you always, did you start out doing things, um, subjects that were more kind of uh, surreal, or or did you start out doing more like traditional comics?
2: Well, when I was a young kid of about 10, I was drawing my own superhero comics. You know, The Puma was one of mine. You may never have heard of him. Um, And, um, (laughs) well, yeah, exactly. Uh, It was drawn in the back of my school book. Um, But,. as I, I went to art college and studied painting and surrealism and Dadaism and all the, uh, you know, opened and expanded my understanding of visual arts, storytelling, all sorts of stuff. I did a painting and film degree, so I was at a strong interest in film as well. Um, so um, uh, when I started to actually produce my mature comics from from my mid-teens era, then the aspirations had grown past the heroes. And I was interested in surrealism and, uh, the sort of, uh, at the time, as, when I came of age, punk rock was happening. So that, that infused my art with a, with a, with a kind of edgier graphic sensibility. Much, much of it inspired by a non-comic artist called, um, now what's his name? He did the Sex Pistols posters. His name momentarily escapes me. And he did all the famous Sex Pistols, uh, Jamie something. Anyway, um, he was a big influence on me with that very hard-edged, photocopied, cut-up style, and um, I took that kind of style, and just at, that, just at the same time in the marketplace, a rising up was a British comic called 2000 AD, which featured Judge Dredd, which seemed to kind of, everybody who ever became anybody in British comics worked on that comic for a certain period of time. I, I certainly did. Now,
1: 2000 AD, was that, did they have different, topics that were in the same magazine, or what What, what exactly that's was right. 2008? What,
2: what, what you in America would call an anthology. We just That's okay. how our British comics come out that way. They always come out with about six different stories contained in them, and you follow the story every week, and they come out every week rather than every month. So it's a different format, but that way you've got a, a wide variety of stuff. Judge Dredd was by far the best thing in it. Everybody wanted to work on that character. He became a phenomenon and was part of that revolutionary... Um, further, that grip comics in the 80s leading to, you know, the more kind of uh, radical stuff from people like Howard Chaykin in America and uh, Los Bros Fernandez, um, you know, all that stuff. I um, mean, Dave Stevens, even with his Rocketeer, that was quite a substantial piece. Uh, there was that, that kind of whole period where the, you know, it felt like the British had taken over everything in the comic industry with their, their harder, more cynical, darker tone. Um but um, it was a good time, very exciting time. Uh, uh, but, it, you know, it came to an end like all, all kind of movements, too.
1: Now, I want to fast forward a little bit. And since we're primarily talking filmmaking, um, mm. I was hoping that we could walk through kind of your backstory with starting with Mad Max 2 and then kind of, you know, <clears throat> obviously going through the, the entire story of working with. Um, okay. The film. So, can you describe? You said you were in Australia when you first saw the first, uh, the second Mad Max film, the That's Road Warrior.
2: Right. Um, I, I was doing what, what is now called a gap year, where I finished university and I had a, uh, saved up a few um, dollars in the days when you didn't have to pay monstrous university fees, and um, uh, I decided to go on a trip around the world. So I, I, I basically took to the hippie trail, as it's known, which was <laughs> I went through Egypt, through India, you know, with all the gurus, uh-huh. and through Nepal into Indonesia, down to Australia and then across through Hawaii into Los Angeles and back to London. So it's quite an interesting trip it took over a year. And uh, when I got to Australia, you uh, I was allowed to work there as a because it's uh, you know, it's part of the UK Commonwealth. And um so I got a job my very first job in animation with Hannah Barbera uh, doing uh, something like a Yogi Bear special or something it's pretty horrific stuff. Okay. Right. Um But, um, you know, that just let me stay in Australia, replenish the wallet. And uh, while I was there, uh, I became interested in surfing, which then wasn't really much of a thing. I'm going back 30 years now. Uh, It wasn't the thing it's become now. Um, It was very underground, just kind of a few coastal towns would have some sort of surfer pothead type people. Um, And then, uh, so I was looking at the surfing, and also at the same time, Mad Max 2 came out. I'd seen Mad Max 1. In those days, you saw films... Uh, in what were known as midnight specials, which was double bill screenings of R-rated movies, usually in porn theaters that were being commandeered for the evening to show the film. Um, <laughs> so I saw Mad Max 1 on a double bill with uh, Cars That Ate Paris, which is a great double bill. And it kind of alerted me to sort of old exploitation films. As, you know, there seemed to be something strange about these Australian car movies.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
2: And but also, they were the two seminal directors of the, of the Hollywood new, revolutionary New Wave, which uh, the Australian New Wave, which were Peter Weir and George Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when I saw Mad Max Two had just come out, I, when I was in Australia, I went on to see it, and I was absolutely blown away. It was kind of like one of those fundamental moments where your psyche is rearranged by a piece of art and you have to, and you realize that uh, you have, you know, it's somehow, it's going to have this sort of enormous effect upon you. Well, with the surfing and the Mad Max film, I concocted a comic strip with Peter Milligan, writer, called Freakwave, which was basically Mad Max goes surfing. On my way back to, in, into LA, the first time in LA, I decided to try and picture it as a movie, didn't know what the hell I was doing, you know, just sort of. Ridiculous, really. But in the end, I meant to sell it as a comic rather than a film. And that led to a career in American comics. Uh, uh, and then uh, this, the comic strip Freakwave, which was this Mad surfing thing, then led on to uh, our own, uh, uh, being given my own comic called Strange Days, which was produced with, with uh, Peter Milligan and Brett Ewans and featured um, Freakwave in a more mutated form. I've been influenced strongly by Zargos, John Borman sci-fi film uh-huh. with the giant yeah. floating heads right. so the Freakwave strip that started off as a Mad Max go surfing type strip, so Waterworld evolved into more of a psychedelic Alice in Wonderland type of you know, psychedelic version of Mad Max um, and um, so that was my interest in Mad Max, I think while I was in Australia I did try and meet all Mad Max people, I did Mad Max 2 and I met everybody, the writers, the producers, everybody except George Miller he was more elusive. So I never met him. I was just a young guy, you know, age 20, just hanging around the offices of George Miller's production company, seeing right. who I could meet. And then lo and behold, you know, sort of about 20 years, well, no, sort of 15 years later, I'm ending up in the offices of George Miller writing Fury Road with him. So that was quite a strange um, twist of fate.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, can we – I, think- I want to rewind just a little bit to, to that first experience with Mad Max 2. Can you talk a little bit about what you – feel like you connected with specifically with that movie and what, what really kind of like hit you. Yeah. I mean, did you know when you were watching it that it was kind of like going to be that all, you know, life altering to you?
2: It was, yeah. It was, um, the thing about, obviously in the air at that time, you just had the massive punk revolution happening with the sex pistols and the redefinition of music and culture by punk. It was very widespread and, and quite a deep turnaround of, you know, it, it upset all the, 60s icons and all that stuff were displaced by this new new kind of raw energy. And um, Mad Max 2, the first Mad Max sort of had that feel in it as well. But Mad Max 2, because of the costuming and the more of a look, really captured that energy. And um, I felt for me, Mad Max 2 was the most immersive film experience I'd ever had up to that point. In that, as soon as the film started and you cut through the early montage into... Mel Gibson and Wes and all that stuff. You were right in the middle of his action, and I was just absolutely taken with it, the shocking brilliance of the costume designs, how good Mel Gibson was. Um, I was just absolutely in that movie from the moment it started, right to the end when, you know, he crushes the tanker, collapses, and he stands there holding the sand running through his hand with a, with a crooked grin on his face. From that whole... That whole story and how it arcs and moves through its plots and stuff like that, uh, I was absolutely captivated. And when I walked out of the cinema, I was so bamboozled by what I'd just seen. I just turned around, bought a ticket and went back in again. (laughs) I had to watch it again in the vain hope that I could somehow figure out what they'd done, how they produced this amazing work. But it took me about, I saw it about probably in the first month, I probably saw it about 20 times. And in those days, you just had to buy a ticket and see it in the cinema because we didn't have video recorders or anything. So, um, um, you know, by after about the sixth or seventh viewing, I could start to actually watch the film as to how it was being made but because it, it took that long to not get sucked into the narrative all the time. Um, so it was become a very important film to me and it's probably the film I've studied the most. So I've probably seen it about 100 times, you know, just and also I, I revisited it then a lot when we were doing Fury Road. Right. Um, uh, so, I feel, you know, there was something, you know, George captured lightning in a bottle in, in that film, and I think it's, you know, I think most people consider it the best of the Mad Max trilogy.
0: Greetings from the humongous, the Lord humongous,
1: the warrior of the wasteland,
2: the Ayatollah of Rock and Roller!
1: I am gravely disappointed.
2: Again, you have made me unleash my jokes of all. Look you at what you remains of your gallant scouts. Now, Why? Because you're selfish. You hold your gasoline. You, you will not listen, listen to reason. Now, my prisoners say, you plan to take your gasoline out of the wasteland. You send them out this morning to find a vehicle. A rig big enough to hold that fat tank of gas. What a puny plan. Look around you. This is the value of death. See?
0: Nothing can escape. The Among rules the wasteland. Give them nothing. Blow it
2: up. Among Us will not be defiled. understand you pain we all are someone below but we do it my way wait! we do it my way I fear is our ally the gasoline will be ours then you shall have your revenge take him away
0: been too much violence, too much pain, none here without sin, but I have an honorable compromise,
2: just walk away, give
1: you a pump, the oil, the gasoline, and the whole compound, and I spare you lives, just walk away, I will give you safe passage in the wasteland, just walk away. And there would be an end to
2: the horror. I await your answer.
1: Okay, so moving on, you tried, over the years, you, you created um, Freak Wave, and, and you you were trying to get in touch with uh, George Miller, and you finally got in touch with him. Can you describe a little bit that first meeting with him and, and kind sure. of what you learned and what that kind yeah. of maybe maybe how he was different than what you were expecting or just what that was like?
2: Right. Um, well, as a kind as of a, by this stage, I'm a lifelong Mad Max fan. I'm I've been disappointed by Thunderdome, although Thunderdome had loads of great stuff in it. Somehow, it didn't quite gel. Right. And because they decided strategically to do it as a, um, a family-friendly mm-hmm. film, it meant that stuff like the Thunderdome, which was a phenomenally great idea, had become sort of watered down a bit. And if that had been an R-rated Mad Max film, Thunderdome probably could have been the best of them. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's the way he chose to go. So
0: we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: I mean, I had all those feelings and you know insights about the Mad Max trilogy, and so uh, what happened is that I was working on a TV series, which was the world's first computer animated long form pre Pixar and DreamWorks stuff called Reboot. And Reboot was a CGI TV series made in Canada. Um, In in the TV series, we featured different um, pastiches. We uh, we did one based on Michael Jackson's Thriller. We did another one based on the James Bond Connery films. So we did one as a pastiche of um, Mad Max 2 Road Warrior. And I actually sent... A, v- a VHS of that episode to George Miller just saying with a little card on it saying, whatever happened to Mad Max? Question mark. <laughs> and so this pastiche of Road Warrior, which was really quite funny and clever, George saw it. At that time, computer animation wasn't widely known and understood. Uh, lots of people would say, what is this? And so oh, it's called CGI animation. You know? So uh, you got you this is pre-Pixar, and... Um, So they were interested in finding out more about the computer animation, really. So I went down to Hollywood to have a meeting with them, which I thought would last about half an hour, uh, because they were thinking about doing a Mad Max TV series along the lines of Xena and Hercules. This is going back, you know, well, it took nearly 20 years now, Mm pre-Netflix. So um, they were looking to think, could we make vehicles or environments for a TV series for with you know possible Mad Max TV series it wouldn't have been, wouldn't have had Mel Gibson in it. it would have just you know been a Warner Brothers Xena type TV series and um, so I met them and we just sort of talked you know and I talked that you know probably drove George Miller up the walls talking about Mad Max and stuff but uh, but we had a very good intense honest conversation about Mad Max why it was great and what worked and what didn't work you know in the trilogy.
1: And Did you tell really him
2: that you end. weren't a fan of the third one? <laughs> well, well, I, well I, I think there's loads of great stuff in the third one. It just didn't quite work. Right. And okay. I think the first half is very good and very credible as a Mad Max film. Second half with the kids, I think the kids are the biggest mistake on the third one. That he instead of instead of treating them with the rigorousness of something like Lord of the Flies, where we look at a child society, he just kind of went cute on them. You know, so I think once you go cute, I feel like you're to a dead end, dramatically. Right. Um, anyway, um, so look, we, I, me and Joe just in the end, ended up talking for about three hours or something insane, you know, rather than that, and uh, we just kind of clicked and hit it off, and um, it, before I left, I pitched him an idea for Mad Max 4, which is completely mental and very silly, but it had some elements in it that were later going to turn up in Fury Road. Um, so... I left and, you know, we said, you know, we'll convene again at some point. There might be something. In the meantime, George has now started to, because I've been talking so much about the Mad Max film, and I guess it had been dormant, and he'd probably been thinking about it too. He started to mull over ideas for a fourth Mad Max film. And uh, I think the TV series faded away, and he just focused now then on the Mad Max film. So I got a phone call three or four months later after that meeting saying, George has got an interesting new idea for a man. Max, I you to have to go to Sydney and maybe knock it around with him. And um, primarily they thought of me as just, you know, uh, he was going to hire another writer and I was going to um, design it. As we went along, you know, I'd board it and I'd design it and, you know, I'd fill it out as we sort of discussed the narrative. And um, as as uh, so when I went over to Australia to Sydney to work with George, in the end he just said to me, he liked my idea so much. He said, listen, do you want to write the film with me? I said I'd love to write the film with you, but you've got to bear in mind I've never written a Hollywood feature film before. And he said, Well, don't worry, I have. Because <laughs> <So laughs> uh, he'd been Oscar nominated for Dave and stuff like that, so you know, and Lorenzo's oil. So, um, so we just set about it, and uh, he kind of adopted his way of working, I think, to fit me because I could write and draw as we went along. Uh we used a thing called a whiteboard with an electron it's an electro board it's called. It's basically a giant whiteboard which you can which runs you know, which you can print out what you've drawn on the whiteboard. So what we would do is every day we would write a little scene and I'd draw, you know, little thumbnail storyboards of the camera angles with if there were new vehicles in it. Like for example, if you came to a period in the Fury Road film, say where the buzzards appear. Mm-hmm. Now I can remember when we like, we got the film to that point, we thought, right, we need a new tribe. The audience is now getting used to everything. We've got to just hit them with something they haven't seen before. And then we think, okay, and then gradually the buzzards evolved from an idea of looking at lizards in the Australian back, in, uh, outback, thorny back lizards, all covered in spikes. And also Peter Weir's Cars at 8 Paris, that spiky Volkswagen, um, you know, that sort of thought, well, there's a look here, and then once the, once I added buzzsaws, they could go up their quick, nimble little card, then get right in and they can take the wheels out on a big truck in a few seconds because of their buzzsaws. That was the idea. They go in and out fast. Um, they're a bit like, we wanted to do a vehicular equivalent of coyotes or um, hyenas. Something scavengy. They feeling of being scavengers. Come in and out, fit quick. Let somebody else almost do the kill, and then take the the booty. You know. Um, so that would be an example of so how the buzzards sort of appeared in the movie would be an example of how me and George would work together on the film. We wrote it the film chronologically and really felt every moment as we went along. And so when we get to the next minute, we were acutely aware of where's the audience? How savvy are the audience about what's just been shown? They're going to, you know, they probably have now absorbed everything. We've got to deliver something brand new to them at this point in the film, and that escalates the film further. So that we were very aware of, you know, just George's great gift is he knows where the audience is all the time. That's a fantastic thing that I learned from him. Always know where the audience is in relation to where you are in the film.
1: Now, when you say where the audience is, you mean how much they know about what's going on?
2: Well, where are they emotionally? Where are they at the okay. point that you're showing them something? What are they feeling? Because you, you have to orchestrate the emotional response of the audience. That's, in a sense, ultimately what film is, isn't it?
1: Right. So, what what was the origin of? I mean, what did he have ready when you started working on it? Was there already uh, yeah. a basic story?
2: Yeah, George had the George had just almost like a one line, one sentence storyline about. Um, You know, there's a citadel run by a warlord. He's got five, he's got a bunch of girls in there. There weren't five at the time. Um, and, um, his favorite, um, warrior woman takes these, sneaks these women out on a supply run and takes, and then takes off with them to take them to her own ancestral home called the Green Place of Many Mothers. And in taking them there, she incites uh, an armada to follow her with Mad Max strapped to the front of one of the uh, hot rods. And ultimately, Mad Max, who's a man who is, you know, probably insane through isolation, who doesn't want to be involved, against his instincts for survival, becomes involved. And by the finale of the film, we see that he has actually and attachment and expresses love to this warrior woman who uh, probably feels the same way about him. And so you have this quite interesting story structure where you've got, where you've got two disparate arcs that join together and actually come together right at the end of Act Two, where the reverse, you know, the return, decision to return to Zitadel, rather than rather than running away from where you, you know your oppression is, and all the rest of it. To find somewhere where the grass is greener, and then they find there is no such place. There is only the place they are in, and you have to change that rather than leaving it. That's the kind of lesson we wanted to say, you know, in terms of the subtext of the film. And uh, so, at the point when he then turns around with her and takes control, when he said it's his idea to go back to the citadel, when she has led them on this if you like wild goose chase to a green place that doesn't exist anymore. Um, it becomes Max's mission, if you like, or, or all of their mission, but he's fully joined in and is, and is uh, fully engaged. Mm-hmm. Above our writing board, all the time, we had a phrase that said, engaged to heal, meaning that's Max's journey.
1: Now, can you talk a little bit about how you work with your creative process? I mean, do you would you guys sit in a room and just throw ideas out, or would you go away and start kind of brainstorming on your own and then come back and then start talking about what you would come up with. Um, and can you just talk a little bit about how you how you work creatively?
2: Yeah. All right. Well, um, well I'll, I'll talk about how we worked on Mad Max Fury Road because I work on my own. If I'm drawing a graphic novel, writing and drawing one right. it's a very quiet, insular process, and I like okay. that. I need to be able to be very quiet so I can travel imaginatively in my own mind to draw my graphic novels, if they're fantasy-based, which they usually are. Um, But for Mad Max, it was very much something that, if you like, it was like two men in the Thunderdome. Uh, There was me, there was myself, and there was George. And basically the two of us were in in his studio called the Mad Max room, (laughs) <laughs> in, um, we had a particular room designated where we'd stick stuff up on the walls and gradually became covered in storyboards to the point where the whole place was completely... By the end of the movie, we had the, you know, the storyboarding process. We had about over 3,000 storyboards up on the wall.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
2: And, um... So really what, what what we'd do is we are coming to work every morning. I mean, I'd run into work every morning sometimes because it was so exciting to find out what the, what the hell's going to happen next in the story. And we didn't know, you know, so we had a rough, there was a very different ending to Fury Road that we were working towards, which in the end, when George walked in one day and said, you know what, they've got to go back. And then we thought, well, hang on a minute, and we had a big hoo-ha about that, and gradually, you know, the reasons for going back overpowered the reasons for continuing to go out into the wasteland. Mm-hmm. So um that was a big uh, turnaround. But generally, um you know, I think about the – uh we had a very powerful, strong, you know, creative game of tennis going on, myself and George. So if, if I'd come in, you know, part of the thing was to come in with a great idea and say, right, this is what happens next. And he would go, brilliant. And then that happens. So you'd kind of have a brainstorming, you know, I'd hit him one, he'd hit me back one. And, you know, gradually the idea would cannon up to become what it was, you know. Sometimes it would go nowhere and you would come up with characters that didn't work or were were superfluous or too many characters, so we had to shave them down a bit. But uh, really, the first year was us to create the whole storyline, figuring it all out. I'm drawing all designs. I did a first pass on the entire movie in that first year. And by the end of it, we had a kind of a document, which was a kind of... It was like a, a mixture of a script and a manifesto and a design journal. Uh, and that, from that, we started to storyboard the film for the next year with Peter Pound and Mark Sexton, these great Australian artists. And um, uh, so that became then the team. And with the storyboarding, George could then become much more specific about cameras and directing. And really, as George has pointed out in other interviews, you can't really script action. You know, it's very difficult with script action. In a, in a way, it's much better to actually define through storyboarding where cameras are, where people are located on vehicles, and it just makes it the process so much easier because you know where everybody is and what they're doing, and you also then start to realize how much design plays a part in the story. Like, you have to – because of certain things you want to happen in the script, you then – that then, that, that then alters the design, say, of the vehicles. Like, for example, when we came up with the idea of the thunder sticks, there's big lances with explosives on the end of them that they throw at things to blow them up. Um, that meant that the design of the vehicles had to change when we came up with them a bit late. You know, we came up, we didn't come up with them in the beginning, we came up with them later and then retrospectively changed the designs of the vehicles so that all the thunder sticks would sit. Properly in the vehicles, you know. So I'm just saying that there was a, there's a constant interaction between design, storyboard, text, dialogue, you know, all that stuff was just uh, just one giant feedback loop.
1: Right. Is there anything that you specifically learned from working with um, George Miller?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, I'd never written a Hollywood feature film before, so I I, I got to understand the arc of a, of a Hollywood film and how, you know, how long, you know, just roughly the work that goes into it, how uh, how much stuff needs to be in a film to keep you interested all the way through. Mm-hmm. I, I particularly learned about things like um, George's theory of the wave in a film, which is, um, he says you can't, he says certain, I mean, I he didn't say this, this is just me observing certain directors who aren't, If you take a director like Tim Burton, for example, he's a very interesting director, and now and then his films work very well. Sometimes they don't. And there's a sort of slight... With Tim Burton, I feel that he has a problem constructing a narrative through an entire movie, that the narrative doesn't rise and fall and then crescendo and end in the way that it should through a feature film, that sometimes the wave that you're following of the story collapses, and then he's got to crank it back up again through special effects or music and get you back up into the place he wants you to be. So I've become quite aware of um, of films that run out of steam, particularly in the second act, that kind of stuff. So George's thing was that you have to make the first act so strong that it propels you with all the drama through the long arc of the second act of the movie. So, um, uh, and then... You, you know, you have to end then on a very strong note. It's, and also his thing of how you leave the movie is, you know, when you're walking out of the movie, the feeling you have in you as you leave the movie is really important as well, how strong that is and how much it resonates. I learned a lot of that kind of stuff I learned from George that I wasn't that aware of. You know, I was kind of vaguely aware of it, but I hadn't articulated it before. And plus I learned about, you know, camera placing, about pure action. I happen to think when George Miller does car action – I feel that he's at his most pure as a director. That's why I love him the most, you know, like, I mean, I like, I appreciate Babe, which is superb. I appreciate Happy Feet and Lorenzo Zoyle, et cetera. But to me, the sheer poetry of George Miller doing vehicular destruction, there's something about that. It's it's a bit like Jackson Pollock doing his drip paintings or the Yates writing Easter 1916 or something. You know, there's something about George Miller doing vehicular destruction that rises to the level of art. I don't know why that is, but the first time I saw Fury Road finally finished at the premiere the other night, um, I felt like this is actually like more of a work of art. You know, as as an example of an art form, this is really good, you know, like in terms of the cinematography, the action. The structure—it felt very accomplished to me, like like a, like a great painting or something, or a, or a piece of great music. I felt that George had achieved that in Fury Road. Um, I, I will uh, just point out a personal high high point in my life was actually going to the premiere of Mad Max Fury Road down at uh, in Hollywood Boulevard there the other, last week, uh, a few days ago, and um, I sat down, you know, in a nice chair to watch Fury Road and who sat down behind me Mel Gibson and George Miller <laughs> sat directly behind me and we watched the film together and at the end of the film you know I turned around and George put his hand out and said thanks Brendan that was fantastic and Mel said good job man <laughs> so I got my hand shaken by Mel Gibson and George Miller which was wow. I'll tell you what man was yeah it was a great it's, as somebody who absolutely loved The Road Warrior and for whom it was a life changing film George Miller and Mel Gibson are the sort of Martin Scorsese and De Niro of Australia in film. You know, they're yeah. they're a very deep a combo. You know, the Lennon McCartney Simon Garfunkel. They're one of those very it was very powerful to watch a film you know that I'd had a hand in what, making with those guys uh, together. It was, a, it was a great moment.
1: Now, was there a difference um, in the? Uh, was there anything that surprised you when you saw the, the premiere, like about the story or anything?
2: Yeah, well, I I, per- I purposely kept away from re- looking at any other versions of the film, like, you know, screenings and, fan- you know, all that sort of stuff. I didn't want to see. I just wanted to see George's final version. I just wanted to see what George Miller, you know, does to Mad Max Fury Road. You know, that's what I wanted to see. I didn't want to see the previous versions, you know, where this scene has been distilling it or that scene had been cut or it didn't have the narrative or whatever. I just wanted to see the final thing. And it was different, yeah. I mean, it's 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 about eighty-five percent what I wrote with George, you know. I and mean, it's exactly the same story, and everything happens the same way. Some of the dialogue is different, and uh, you know, look, honestly, I I would take issue with some of the dialogue, in it, uh, but that's 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 you know, that's me as a writer sort of th- thinking, mm, no, I don't think that works, or I wouldn't have done that there. And there's other bits where I where I worked out stuff with George, which he changed and he made it better, so. You know, it's all swings and roundabouts, isn't
1: it? Right. Yeah, I, I always – you wonder what it would have been like with Mel Gibson in it too, you know?
2: Yeah, well, I wrote – I mean, what I wrote and was involved in was the Mel Gibson version, you know, in the fourth Mel Gibson film in the Mad Max series. So that's why I was interested in, I actually wanted – I was an advocate for Mel Gibson probably long after anybody else was. Because I thought, <laughs> I think it's interesting that you've got this guy when he was really young in the first Mad Max film. And if you do Mad Max 4, you've got him on the cusp of going into a um, mature age.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: And then really come back to him in another 20 years when it's like, melt, you know, it's Mad Max Unforgiven and he's a crazy old coot, you know, <laughs> uh, I think. I think that would have been an amazing arc of that you know of an actor and a film series that nobody had ever done before. anyway, in the end, because of uh, uh, because of the reality of filmmaking and how long it took to get Mel f- faded out of it, um it, it did go to uh, Eagle ledger, apparently George was telling me uh, the other day and um, and once he passed away, it uh, you know George was looking for uh, that slightly similar kind of animal spirit that you found in Tom Hardy. <clears throat> but um, if you look at, if you go to the website, where, which features my original concept art for Mad Max Fury Road, mm-hmm. it's called artbrendan.com. A-R-T-B-R-E-N-D-A-N.com, artbrendan.com. Okay. If you go to that, um, you'll see uh, uh, production art, which shows Mel Gibson in certain... Uh, you know, sequences and stuff. So you know, you'll get a feeling of um, what it could have been like.
1: <clears throat> now, are you going to be involved with the the future films, or is that something that's kind of on the on the horizon?
2: Um, I don't know. And um, you know, I mean, let's see how it let's see what it does at the box office, and if there are any future films. You know, what I mean, that's a that's you know, there's a long way to go. We took us 18 years to get this one made. So hopefully, <laughs> the next if there is another one if there is another one uh, or two uh, that they that it, that it won't take so long. The thing about, uh, but I, I, I'm i very, you know, my thing about when I when I entered into the relationship with George in order to produce the Fury Road uh, script and designs, we always had an, an agreement, a handshake agreement, that if this wasn't absolutely stunningly brilliant, we shouldn't do it. We should not disappoint Mad Max people by putting out a lacklustre reboot. Right. And uh, so, thankfully, Fury Road. I feel everybody feels it's passed the test, and it's probably as good as Mad Max 2. I don't think it's better, but it's certainly as good as the best in the series. So that's, that's pretty much when we were when we were actually um, writing and working in the early days of Fury Road. I mean, I couldn't prompt myself to look at, like we both did, everything that we could, like things like Bullet and, uh, you know, Fast and the Furious, just look at the competition. See what what do we have to beat that's out there. And quite frankly, in the end, the only competition we had was Mad Max 2. Really, nothing had still beaten Mad Max 2 in terms of sheer thrill power. And um, so that became the thing that we had to, Mm -hmm. not so much beat, but that was the art thing, that we had to at least equal or surpass Mad Max 2 in the new one. Um, so I think having proved that with Fury Road that George can you know kick ass on the vehicular destruction <laughs> thrill side of life, well, you know you might find the next Mad Max if one is made you know I, I don't believe I, I'd be quite I think people would be bored by a rerun of Fury Road with just like loads and loads of just cars smashing into each other. You can't do that again, you know you've got so really I feel that the sequel to Fury Road, Um, you know, it's got to hinge upon a great idea. There's got to be a core concept at it, you know, that is compelling enough, just as this one had um, a guy who's breeding wives, a a guy who's breeding with women to try and perpetuate his own dynasty, which is what it kind of became in Fury Road as the core idea around which the, the whole story revolves. You need something very strong and compelling in a sequel, a core idea, which motivates an entire story. So, you know, that's, you know, sometimes that can be easier said than done. If, if that, you know, maybe George has got that idea. I don't know, but um, uh, you know, that's the thing I'd be looking for though. Is to, is again, don't make Mad Max sequels just for the hell of it. You know, just make make one if you've got one to make. And I right. think George has that integrity around the Mad Max franchise that he's not going to. You're not going to dilute it and just turn it into, you know, some, yeah, you know, just yet another Terminator sequel that you, you, you sort of ho-hum, you
1: know. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, now, what are you working on now in terms of your, your own projects?
2: Well, at the moment, I'm, um, I'm in the t- tail end, I'm in the final sort of few episodes of a, a graphic novel comic book series called Dream Gang which could be best described as the X-Men meets Inception although it's a lot more um David Lynch than that um, uh, but basically it's about a group of psychics who project themselves into dream worlds and uncover a kind of conspiracy to destroy the higher functions of the human race so that we stop having dreams and visions and you know musicians stop si- making songs and poets stop writing poetry Martin Luther King doesn't say I have a dream anymore because all that's gone. We remove all that. We just become kind of akin to cattle, consuming cattle. Anyway, that's the sort of conspiracy that these these uh, psychics find when they're wandering around in people's dreams and they have to kind of pull themselves together and do something about it and, and somehow defeat this, conspir- this dark conspiracy. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. And I'm, when I get back to my home, I shall be... Uh, Starting work in a couple of days again, and get and bring it uh, thing. I've also written a couple of new feature films, and um, that's why I'm here in Hollywood, just uh, doing some meetings and seeing, you know, capitalizing on the bugs from Mad Max.
1: Right. Have you, okay. are, you are you? Have you more comfortable now with like writing actual screenplays and, and things like that?
2: Uh, I like working with somebody. I'm I'm, I'm a collaborator. Really. I enjoy working with somebody. So I'm one of those guys that sort of. You know, the, you know, you think of the cliched Hollywood writing partner: one guy sits at the typewriter, the other guy walks around punching the air and coming up with crazy shit. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of those type of relationships suit me the best, you know, where I have a uh, the person, you know, like we have a kind of uh, a collaborator that can kind of uh, give it structure and uh, you know, it, it, it knows the, the traditional structures of screenwriting, right. and then I, I can then. Take, take it, and collaborate and bounce ideas with them, and hopefully between the two of us, come up with something better than we would on our own.
1: Well, Brendan, I appreciate it. I know you've got to run, so I'll, I'll let yeah. you go. But I really appreciate your time, and uh, <clears throat> best of luck in the future. And and yeah. you know, congratulations with the success of uh, Mad Max Fury Road. I take it
2: you've seen it, yeah? Yeah, I saw it,
1: and I was absolutely blown away.
2: Yeah, and do you did you know the original trilogy?
1: yeah i mean mad max 2 is is one of my all time favorites and the original mad max you know the, those are two yeah. of my favorite movies
2: and how did you did you feel, how did you feel thunderdome sat with the original trilogy
1: i was never you know i uh my memory of thunderdome was always seeing the tina turner video that was on like oh, right. mtv yeah, like over and over, you know, over and over sure. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember seeing that, and I don't think I ever even saw it in the theater. When I saw Mad oh, yeah. Ma- when, when I saw Mad Max uh, 2 or The Road Warrior, you know, I saw it on TV, and oh, right. so I would watch it on a VHS tape, and I, you know, I recorded it, and it was kind of edited down, so it was like yeah. they cut out a lot of the scenes and everything. Um, but I would watch it in slow motion. The first scene where um, yeah. Wes is chasing after him, I would watch all that yeah. in slow motion to see how they, you know, and I wanted to be oh, a filmmaker. You did exactly
2: since- like excited. <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, since I was yeah. a little kid, I was like, that was my right. movie, you know. And how
2: did you feel that Fury Road fit? How did it compare to the trilogy, do you think? Does it, Perfectly. Did does it, does it, does it fit into the canon, do you
1: feel? Well, the thing that I was excited about, because when I first saw the preview, I didn't know it was even something that they were making, you know, because when I, I would go see, like, I saw Babe and I saw all these other movies and I would see George Miller's name attached. And I was like, is that the same, is that Road Warrior George Miller? All right. And so I I didn't really know he was even making it. And then all of a sudden one day I see the preview for Fury Road and I see that the it's trailer. involving a truck, uh yeah, yeah, the trailer. And, you know, it's got the truck and it's got everybody chasing after it. And I was like, wow, this is going to be like taking the second half of The Road Warrior and that's going to kind of be the framework for yeah. the entire movie. Exactly. So I, I was, you know, I, I right. really kind of, couldn't wait, you know, it was one of the, I mean, a lot of people are excited about Star Wars. I was just like, you know, counting down the days yeah. to watch Fury Road, you know, I'm, and, and I'm I was absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there were, the only thing that I was, was maybe different was just Tom Hardy playing the character sure. of Max.
2: That's exactly you know? right. That's the, that's the big thing to get over, isn't it? Not having in it. Right. But, and yeah, you know, there, there's, Tom did a good job and uh, you know, I think overall the film, most people are pretty pleased
1: with it. Yeah, and, and for me, you know, I really love, you know, I, I had previously like a week or so before gone to see The Avengers, and right. I can't tell you how fed up I am with just digital effects and everything so is like Avengers CG. me to sleep.
2: I, I left after about an hour
1: and a half. I couldn't, I just was so bored with it. Yeah. We'll be right
0: back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: So I, I was just thrilled, and especially, I mean, I, I've been glued to like YouTube, looking at all the behind-the-scenes footage and how they yeah, right. were able to put everything together. And I, I think there's going to be there's there's really a revolt going on to all this CGI, and, and I think you see it in the new Star Wars movie too. That people are like, they want to see people in danger, you know? Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. want to really see a movie being made instead of just everything done on the computer.
2: Yeah, I think Mad Max. Uh, Fury Road is going to have a big influence on music making from now on it's going to change the uh, gear a bit, now, as you write about just all that very unbelievable CGI
0: I want to thank Jason so much for doing such a great job on this episode if you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 286 thank you for listening guys as always keep on writing no matter what we'll talk to you soon Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at BulletproofScreenwriting.tv.